Okay, now for some good news. The book of Job. Job chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, and a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him? And his household and everything he has. You have blessed the work of his hands, so that the flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then. Everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put your, the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on their camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship, and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. This is the word of the Lord. I know, I know. It, it, it's a little bit the thanks be to God sometimes can get stuck in your throat when you're like, am I, what am I agreeing to with the thanks be to the Lord when I say that uh, for this passage in particular? This is one of the great, maybe... The only real challenge to, the, to our faith, to those who believe in a loving God, is evil and the presence of evil. The, the question of why, of suffering, of the innocent. You know, when somebody gets high, gets in a car, crashes into a tree, the cause and effect is pretty straightforward, right? You, you made this choice that led to this action, straightforward. When a kid's born blind, when um, your kid gets leukemia, what do we do? What do we say? That, that question of why comes deep inside of us. Why, particularly with 
the young and the innocent. And I don't know if you've ever tried to answer that question why. If you've read books about it, wrote a piece about it, it's impossible. It just can't be done. I sometimes use this analogy. Um, a dog named Riggins. He's at home right now. He has no idea what, what's happening. You know, I think he has some vague notion I'm going to come back to him and return to him. I would love for Riggins. I might help his anxiety to know where I go and what I do, but it's simply beyond him. And I think part of the question itself is trusting God to understand the complexity and things that, that, that are simply beyond us. I think that's part of the book of Job, is saying like evil is not explained in the book of Job. It's the backdrop of a story God is telling uh, uh, about um, the way the world is, because there's no cause and effect that we can find um, to avoid our suffering. There's no explanation that somebody dealing with deep grief and loss can go, okay, that makes sense. That's the whole point of evil. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's, we have to hold in the realities of the world and the evil we see in it with the goodness of God at the same time. And trust, we simply don't have the capacity to understand how those two pieces fit together. Um, we're told several times Job is righteous. He's righteous, he's God-fearing, he's got habits in place that shape character, he's a good person. And God, so good that God says about Job, have you considered Job, his righteousness, his goodness, his, his moral character, um, all, all that that is. He, um, he fears God, he's grateful for everything he's given. And as the story moves forward, you will find, because we're going to do this for three weeks, so two more weeks, you will find that you will lose and forget that he's righteous. You will begin to blame him for what's happening. You will begin to say, Especially when Job refers to his own righteousness in front of his friends, you'll say, yeah, but nobody's perfect. Are you sure you can say that? And the book of Job says, yes, he is righteous. He did nothing wrong to deserve what is happening to him. His four friends doubt his innocence, urge him to repent, um, but he's never faulted. His innocence is never questioned. From the first chapter to the last chapter, his innocence is maintained. So I want to ask you this. Why do you think it's so hard? To, be, to believe Job's innocent. Maybe it's not for you. Maybe you're like, no, I, I'm, in, I'm in Job. I'm on team Job I, from start to finish. But for me, I forget that. And what I think the book of Job forces us to do is ask the question, why is it so hard to remember that Job is innocent as all these evil, terrible things happen to him? Think about the question, why? When it emerges, why did this happen? Why are things this way when they could have been another way. Why do you think we ask that question? What's behind it? Um, you know, it's, I know that I ask why when a small bad thing happens, like, I don't know, I wake up and I was going to say somebody rummages through my Jeep, but the why to that is because it has no doors. So that, that's a little bit harder to ask here. Um, but whether, whether big or small, my knee-jerk reaction, whenever something happens, is a sense of shame, a desire to repent, and appease God. My default setting is if something bad happens, it is somehow my fault. And what I need to do is get things right, get things right with the Lord. And 
There, there are times when the things that happen to me are the consequences of my own actions and behaviors, and I need to, I, repentance is appropriate. But what Job opens up for me is another category, which is the suffering of the innocent. That in, in here, Job is righteous. What happens to him is not punishment. But his four friends inhabit the, the spirit of the accuser, that stands, this, they have this, they, they become mouthpieces of Satan when they go again and again saying, repent, you had to have done something wrong. There's, you're going to see this next week. I don't want to step on next week. But what you'll find is there's all that behind the question of why, ultimately, at least for me, I don't want to project on you, for me, I want to know why because then I know what the rules of the game are and then I can get what I really want. Why gives me the capacity to understand the chain of events that lead to bad things happening? And if I can hack the system, if I can, if I can find the right hack, then I can get what I really want, which is prosperity, joy, um, safety. My kids are safe and, and thriving. If, if I know what the rules are, if I know the right sacrifices, the right activities, I go to the church the right number of time, I, I spend the right amount of hours um, in my during my quiet time, whatever it is, if I can hack the system, if I can figure it out, if I can learn why, then I can get what I really want, control, safety, blessings, prosperity, even the good things, justice and fairness and equality. I can get all those things if I can just figure out how to hack the system. And whenever, whatever sense we have of Job must not be innocent, he must be to blame for what's happened, if, if someone is suffering, and I live in that world, I will always do them harm. Because I'll justify my system. I, I have to, because the world is cause and effect, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. If somebody's suffering, well, there's a fly in the ointment. My system isn't working anymore. And so what I have to do to defend or to protect the sense of security in the world is I have to start to blame them for what's wrong. It could be soft. Be like, maybe God's teaching you something. Maybe God's just trying to get your attention. There's a, n a number of ways that we do that. But know this, if you have glib answers to why people suffer, you'll harm the person. There's something that I learned early on in helping dealing with people um, in grief and loss. It's, it's the acronym is for the word WAIT. And it stands for why am I talking? Because that's rarely what people need, you know? And it's rarely, I've, re I've, I've never, I've yet to meet somebody in grief and offer an explanation where they go, thank you. I no longer grief. Uh, it's, you've, solved, you've solved the mystery of the reasons. We're good now. Your job's done. You're really good at what you do. Uh, no. Uh, generally speaking, bearing witness to the suffering of others through the solidarity of presence, of sitting, of not demeaning these holy spaces with words and just simply bearing witness to the grief of others. If only... Job had friends like that. But he didn't. But then again, we wouldn't have a book like the book of Job if he had good friends, so here we are. So, I don't think the question of why is at the center of this passage, nor is it at the center of the book of Job. Um, if you're looking for a definitive once and for all of reconciling why evil happens amidst the sovereign control of a loving and good God, uh, you'll be disappointed. Suffering is the... Is is the backdrop. It's the setting of this book. It's not the focus. The focus, well, the focus is on Job. 
and his friends. And how our, on the one hand in the book of Job, you have our capacity to suffer with dignity and resiliency and faith, and you have our tendency to scapegoat and blame victims for their suffering. So that's, that's the backdrop. This story, I don't think in that heavenly council passage that we're supposed to walk away from that saying, oh, now I know how heaven works. You know, I think that the part of that's mysterious. It's, um, but what is, rather than giving us a logic to suffering, what you have in here is amidst suffering as a given, a vast field for integrity, courage, resiliency, long-suffering, all the virtues that we list as being valuable, flourish amidst suffering. Satan and God have two very different convictions about the dignity and capacity of humans to endure suffering. God has a high view of Job. Satan has a low view of Job. It's, God says, have you considered my servant Job, who is righteous? Satan says, not so fast. Of course, of course Job is faithful. Look at, look at all you've given him. His faith is not in you. His faith is in all the stuff you give him. It's a contract. And you're more than fulfilling your side of the contract, God. Of course he's righteous. Of course he gives sacrifices. He's got all these animals. Like, he doesn't even notice the difference there. Take that away. You'll find he's not so righteous. You'll find that he is a spoiled child. Um, he doesn't love you. You've spoiled him. You've, you've asked me to consider your servant Job. I'm not impressed. In fact, he's hiding his depraved heart behind a fake righteousness in his beautiful estate. What's impressive about that? Anyone would love you if you blessed him like that. There's a wager at the heart of this passage that I've always found troubling. Have you? Just me? Okay, a few, a few noms. For those of you in the podcast, people are vigorously nodding up and down. Um, <laughs> It's troubling. It's hard. It's, it's hard not to be unsettled by this, especially if you're suffering. And you're like, this is a game? This is a wager? Like, what is, what is happening right now? This is where I found comfort in this passage. I think this is, this is what's essential to take away from it. Um, God stakes his reputation on Job's ability to endure suffering with integrity. Satan puts his reputation on the fact that Job will fail. And that's the stuff. Who has a higher view of humankind, God or Satan? God says, his, he has an authentic righteousness. I see his heart, I know his heart. He will endure great suffering, and he will not give in to blaming me uh, or cursing his life. God is, is staking his reputation on Job. And, not to spoil, God wins the bet. Job remains righteousness. Satan was wrong. Wrong about Job. Job did not sin amidst all the evil that happened to him. God has stakes his reputation on Job's integrity. And he was right. Job is encouragement to me because it says my faith can be actual, real, and more than the blessing that God's given me. That I can endure suffering and 
um, and still end up worshiping God. I, I think, you know, I think a lot about my faith in God. I don't think as much about God's faith in me. And what's happening in this passage is the relationship between God entrusting, no, sorry, Job entrusting God, but God also trusting Job. Think about how many times in the Gospels does Jesus trust his disciples to go out there. They're knuckleheads at times. I, my joke is I want to get Greek. You know how cool pastors get Greek tattoos on their bodies? And I want to, I want to get one. One of the numerous times Jesus asked the question, are you still so dull? Uh, just as a way of, I don't know, I like that idea. Uh, never going to do it, but I like that idea. Um, God trusts, they have faith in each other. God, Job trusts God. And likewise, in this, in this passage, Job is trusted by God, that he believes in him. And Job, they have faith in each other. And part of what endures through the story is the trust of God and Job together through it, through all that loss. His wealth stolen by raiders, people coming in, attacking, taking stealing from him, wicked people, living off the sword, profiting off another person's labor. Um, his friends. Um, and then his servants. A word servant, I don't like that word. Uh, I think what helps encourage me through this, this passage is start to finish. The biblical witness of a righteous person is one who does not treat people as objects, but as image bears. And so implied in this text is that Job took good care of his people. That it would probably, I think the word employee is a relatively modern invention, but I think that is a, a fair way to think about how Job treated the people under his care, and trusted under his care. He's righteous, um, he has plenty of wealth, and, and, um, and so when they are gone, I think that's another personal loss. And then there's his beloved children. It's kind of set up at the beginning. They have, they have birthday parties, they come together. Um, I have five kids. Did I have to pause to count them? No, I don't think I did. Um, I have five children, and, and the thought of them coming together to celebrate just warms my heart. It's beautiful, that the family together to celebrate, and then strong wind from the desert hits all four corners of the home. It collapses. And in, in four moments, four servants come running in, the only survivors to give him devastating news after devastating news. It all hits them at the same time. And then the final blow, your children are gone, is when he tears his clothing and shaves his head, a sign of grief and mourning. And then he does what I think is the most surprising thing in all of Scripture, done by a human being not named Jesus. He worships at the end. He does not blame God. He worships God. The accuser is wrong. Those who internalize the voice of the accuser and blame Job for his suffering are wrong. God and Job, in the end, are right. He loses everything and he still worships God because he never loved and worshiped God for all the good things God gave him. He worshiped God for who he is. And Job doesn't even know what we know. Or I should say more accurately, God doesn't know, Job doesn't know whom we know. You know, I, I imagine standing before God alone in his presence and 
course, being overwhelmed by his love, his majesty, his presence. And, um, and then eventually God saying to me, John, what brought you here? And I say, you know, I've come to ask why is there so much suffering in the world? So much needless, wasted suffering. And then, seeing Jesus step forward with his nail-scarred hands, seeing imprinted in his forehead where the, nails, where the thorns went, and opening his robe to see the, 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 the wound on his side. And, and then finally understanding. Finally worshiping and saying, and hearing Jesus say, I understand your confusion, I know your pain. What Job doesn't understand is that God is in solidarity with us in our suffering. That he too suffers. The good news of the gospel is, is not that we figured out the secret to living this magical, perfect life if you just follow these instructions perfectly. Because it's not faith in a God so that we can get a comfortable life. It's, it's that God sent us his son to suffer and die at the hands of sinful people and that when he looks at us, he sees in you and in each of us the potential to endure suffering with strength, courage, dignity, and integrity. That sometimes we're taught to pray, God deliver me. And sometimes we're taught to pray, God give me the courage to get through this season. And what Job tells us is that God often has a higher view of you and sees potential in you that you can't see in yourself just yet. And what I've found, too, knowing you, many of you, most of you perhaps, that there's a lot of suffering in this room. And what I can say is I'm constantly humbled by your capacity to endure suffering. And what I've found in in being part of a community that has a capacity to, to strengthen and encourage each other through suffering is that there's levels of friendship, intimacy, and depth that come when we go through difficult times together. There's a way that when we suffer, there's a, a shame associated with it because I think we think suffering is somehow our fault when it's not always our fault. Job at least has another category. Sometimes that's your fault, um, but that's not an explanation for everything knowing that we're not alone, that there's no shame in suffering, and Job reminding us that, that even the innocent can suffer, um, knowing that Jesus is well acquainted with suffering, tears, injustice, sorrow, and hope. Hope for us as well. So let's come to the table with our tears, our confusion, our pain, and drink the cup, eat the bread, brought to us through suffering leading us towards redemption and hope, knowing that one day soon God will make all things new again. Let's pray as we come to the table. Father, sometimes we pray for deliverance. Sometimes we pray for the strength we need to get through the days ahead. Wherever we are today, I ask that you would come close to each of us. For anyone here who has internalized the idea that all suffering is our fault, set them free. May you know May they know that you see something in each of us that sometimes we can't see in ourselves. We thank you for Jesus, sending him to us through that we 
worship and serve our Creator, who is well acquainted with grief, suffering, loss, betrayal, losing a friend too soon. That you are with us in our suffering and solidarity. And we thank you that Jesus has defeated death and sin forever. And until that day comes when it's gone for good, may we have the resiliency and the strength we need um, to suffer. And may we be like Job, that in the end, we would learn to worship you in every season of life, we pray. For the grace we need for this, in Christ's own name, amen.